welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Boren. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more, listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, sign up to our email list, and so much more. For daily updates, trivia, shenanigans, and the occasional giveaway, follow us on social media over Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And now, on to this week's episode. Hey guys and ghouls or whatever, it's me. Uh, We're back for another packed episode of the Strangeology podcast today. Uh, This one's going to get a little epic and I'm stoked because it's really my first episode covering ancient mysteries and and historical stuff and I'm a total sucker for that kind of of thing. But anyway, uh, I have some exciting news. I am officially going to be a vendor at this year's CryptidCon in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, which is in uh, mid-November. I'm simultaneously pumped, but also uh, a little scared, a little terrified. Uh, I'll be road tripping it down there since I'll be bringing along um, a lot of merch to sell, and I've got to figure out all the logistics of that, and i got to get my my table display all set, maybe make some banners or something. I have a band, so I'm somewhat familiar with uh, minor touring, you know, up in the the Northeast and selling the occasional shirt or CD after a gig. And I actually wound up making a a small display (laughs) for whenever my band plays shows or uh, goes out on tour, but it's, it's made with like those uh, wireframe, uh, shelving racks. And it's kind of just like zip tied together with a bunch of stuff. So probably should get something that looks a little nicer than that, I would think. But, um, yeah, this, uh, cryptid con is going to be on a whole different level. So I hope to see, uh, a lot of folks there. And I know I'll be hanging out with a lot of the, the cryptid family crew that I've, I've come to know, and who have been so supportive of uh, what I do and uh, many others in the community. So it's going to be a really good time, and uh, I'm pumped. So definitely, uh, if you're in the area or you're super into cryptids, definitely check that out this fall. It's happening on November 20th and 21st. So I'm trying to figure out some details uh, for a couple other potential tour dates this fall. But for now, this is uh, the very first one I'm officially announcing. So um, the other week, I also I set up a voicemail for the show for people to share their stories. And I actually wound up getting a couple uh, calls that uh, I'm going to play for you all. <laughs> um, and... Uh, if, if you do want to call in, uh, the number is uh, 802-448-0612. And if you want to call in with your story, uh, be detailed. There's a, there's a time limit to it. Uh, I believe it's like three minutes. So if your story runs on longer than that, feel free to call back and keep going, pick up where you left off. Um, so 
I'm, I'm hoping in the future to do a whole episode of, of this kind of thing uh, from time to time. So uh, this first clip that I'm going to play was actually in response to uh, my previous episode on the Pale Crawlers, and it's it's pretty wild. Uh, it comes from uh, an anonymous uh, person who is uh, involved in the military, and uh, check this out. Hey, man. Um, I just found you on the Reddit. Uh, you posted this uh, cryptid crawler uh, podcast. I just got done listening to it. It's pretty cool. Um, I have a theory. So I I had an experience up at Fort Drum near Antwerp um, of a gunnery one year. This is back in 2017. I did a post on it on the uh, crawler sightings. Uh, but uh, basically, I'm just running and running by myself down the tank trail. And it's like a, just a graded gravel road. I'm about three miles off of the gunner, gunning range that I, my unit was at. I was by myself with headphones in. Um, about 30 meters in front of me from the left to right side of the tree line, there's the woods come up to right where the road is. There's not really any uh, ditches off to the left or right. It was pretty tight. And uh, I see this, I see this uh, like white, gray, lanky, long thing um, about eight to nine feet tall. I, I didn't. I can't really tell you what it looked like because it was so fast and it just comes out of the wood line from the left side to the right side, running across the road on two legs, bipedal, um, faster than I've ever seen any living thing move. Um, I instantly stopped, looked at the last point of known origin of the thing, and I just kept staring at that. And I sit, yell out, no bueno, no epic bueno. And I start backpedaling without taking my eyes off that. Um, you know, and nothing else after that. It didn't, like, chase me or anything. I don't really, you know, I was freaked out. But, um, you know, lo and behold, I talked to my buddies, uh, same unit as I, you know, these guys. I've experienced the same stuff up there. So, um, what I'm uh, intending to do is to go back and investigate. I have a couple buddies that want to take a adventure ride up there um, this summer, so that's what we're going to do. Um, I will uh, let you know what we find out. Thank you so much. All right, later. So I definitely can't wait to hear about this guy's exploration of the area and what he finds. It's, um, you know, these kinds of encounters and, and sightings, they just happen out of nowhere. And usually there are only a few seconds, but whatever he saw, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I would probably have the same reaction, like definitely, uh, get out of there as quick as possible, <laughs> you know? Um, so if you're listening, thank you for calling in and, uh, definitely keep me posted. Uh, if you actually do get out back to that area and, uh, do some investigation with some friends this summer. The next message uh, I have here comes from the handler of Mini Mothman, and uh, it's a curiosity to say the least. And it kind of involves uh, some something that's something that's potentially paranormal. Uh, you know, I'll I'll leave it up for you to decide. But uh, check out this this call. Hello, this is Greta, content creator for the Caddy Wampas and Minnie Mothman's personal handler. In honor of National Paranormal Day, 
Here's one of my spooky stories. It's a little jocktastic, but I think it counts. My husband and I are cycling enthusiasts. We bike and also follow professional cycling. La Vuelta is a 21-stage cycling grand tour of Spain, usually held every August and September. Last year, the race was delayed by roughly two months and shortened to 18 stages due to COVID. Stage 3 was held on October 22nd and ended with a Category 1 climb, which, in layman's terms, means that there was a very steep and difficult mountain the cyclists had to summit to reach the finish line. By the closing kilometers of the stage, the strongest climbers were locked in a tight battle up the mountain. It came down to an Irishman named Dan Martin and a Slovenian named Primoz Roglic. In the last 200 meters, they were fairly neck and neck. Then Martin pulled away and won the stage. The odd thing was, he didn't immediately celebrate. Usually, the winner of a stage makes a gesture acknowledging their win, even if they're gassed. The commentators even noticed it and remarked on it. Shortly thereafter, it was revealed that Martin didn't think he had won the stage, but that he had come in second, hence why he didn't react. People told him, no, 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 you were definitely ahead of Roglic, but he claimed there was someone else ahead of him. That person won the stage. Okay, so it's logical to assume he was probably imagining things, right? Cameras showed no one ahead of him, and no spectators got onto the course. A professional cyclist is on their bike for hours. They might not eat enough. They might not drink enough. And they're at the mercy of the weather conditions, which were definitely more challenging that late in the year. He was probably on the limit, maybe dehydrated, riding up that hill through the thick trees, his body in pain, the helicopters and motorcycles droning in his ear, the daylight slipping away. Anyone could start imagining things. Everyone, including us, brushed it off, and we figured we wouldn't hear any more about it. Then the next day, at the beginning of stage four, the commentators brought up the ending of the prior stage. And I'm paraphrasing here, but this is roughly what was said. Dan Martin got the win, but he didn't think he did because he thought another cyclist was ahead of him. Funny enough, Roglic said he thought someone was ahead of them, too. So the message cut off at the end, uh, but essentially all the info is there. So what was it that these cyclists were were seeing? Was it uh, ghost cyclists, perhaps uh, people who have been in these races in the past that have uh, met an untimely end, or was it a hallucination? It is a wacky and weird world out there, so definitely... Uh, definitely some interesting stuff for sure. So again, you know, if you want to call in to the show, um, definitely, definitely do. I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, so why don't we jump into the episode now? There were some news stories that I thought about tossing in here, but the more I researched for this episode, it became clear that it was gonna be an epic one. <laughs> so I just wanted to quickly mention, uh, if, you, if you are looking for cryptid-related news on, on the regular, uh, if you're on the Clubhouse app, every Saturday afternoon 
2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Central. Uh, Bigfoot Society and a few other folks do a room on the Bigfoot Society Club, uh, which is uh, they gather together all the recent news from at least the last week or two and talk about all the cryptid stories uh, that pop up. Uh, so if you don't have the app or, or can't make it, the recap is posted afterwards over on uh, Bigfoot Society's YouTube channel. So definitely check that out. And uh, I've been meaning to hop on in that room one of these days, but <laughs> schedule doesn't always line up. My weekends are usually pretty busy. But uh, And also Clubhouse has recently opened up beta for Android users. So it's... Uh, you know, hopefully that all works out and, you know, things are going to get pretty wild over there. So <laughs> I try to make it on uh, every Wednesday night for for the the weekly the weekly room uh, talking about different cryptid topics. Uh, sometimes I don't make it. But anyway, <laughs> let, why don't we get into today's topic? So when I was growing up, I loved the Indiana Jones trilogy. I also loved uh, studying stars and reading about things in space. So if I wasn't going to be an astronomer studying studying the universe and outer space, and I, I was going to probably become an archaeologist, you know, little little kid pipe dream stuff. And clearly I went in a different direction in life, but to this day space and and archaeological discoveries continue to fascinate me. I would frequently hear when I was younger that everything from humanity's ancient past was already discovered, or it soon would be. So what would be the point of getting into it? And, you know, perhaps that kind of influenced my decision uh, to shy away from maybe exploring <laughs> exploring a, a career in that kind of a field. I was also uh, very much into art, and that's kind of the direction I, I chose with my life. But as it turns out, there's so much more out there that's left to be discovered in the world. You've got places like uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey or Gunung Padang in Indonesia, uh, that both push back the date of humans establishing civilization uh, pretty significantly and kind of in, in certain ways upend our uh, mainstream understanding of history. And then there's, you know, supposed um, underwater cities off the, the western coast of India uh, and things like that that are just, you know, just with, out of reach or they're completely buried and we just don't know where things are. Uh, and... There's also discoveries of previously unknown hominid species like the Homo floresiensis, otherwise known as the, the hobbit people of the island of Flores in Indonesia, which was uh, a fairly recent discovery, or even the Denisovans from the steppes of Asia, which we know almost nothing about. And the only reason we even really know about them uh, was a finger bone that was found in the Denisova cave in Siberia, which scientists were able to extract mitochondrial DNA from that was distinct from us and any other archaic humans living at the time. This human cousin, as it turns out, interbred with 
Neanderthal and Homo sapiens every once in a while. And interestingly, some people today retain up to 2% Neanderthal DNA, primarily in European and Asian populations. And in Melanesian populations, uh, these people have the highest markers of Denisovan DNA, uh, which is up to 6%. So it's, it's pretty interesting to think about what was going on with ancient humans. There's so much that we don't know, uh, and there's missing chapters in our history. And as far as other groundbreaking discoveries, uh, in 2017, there was this article published about evidence that humans were present in California some 120 to 140,000 years ago. And I remember when this story came out, there was a lot of excitement and doubt and you know, this article is claiming a human presence in America well over 100,000 years before humans were thought to have even arrived there over the Bering Land Bridge uh, about 15,000 years ago. So uh, clearly there's an extraordinary claim there. And as the saying goes, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But apparently it was based on these findings of these fossilized bones of an ancient Macedon that were found and they had what appeared to be man-made cut marks on them so it's like how did those get there if it wasn't a human doing it anyway what i'm saying here is that while we know a fair amount about our past there's a lot more that we don't know and that mystery and intrigue of what else is out there waiting to be discovered is an exciting prospect in the words of graham hancock humans are a species with amnesia, and there's so many gaps in the knowledge of our past, and even today, things are <laughs> things are forgotten about pretty quickly if they're not written down. And uh, you know, sometimes it seems humans are are doomed to repeat past mistakes. You know, uh, so for today's main topic, I decided to look into a subject that pops up from time to time, and I've heard about it for years, uh, seen episodes of uh, TV shows, you know, like Ancient Aliens or other documentaries uh, that talks about this topic. And I've never really done an in-depth investigation of it. Uh, so here we are. Uh, this is the tale of the lost ancient Egyptian city of the Grand Canyon. All right, so I'll ask the question. What if everything we know about American history is wrong? What if the Americas were visited by transoceanic explorers and, and traders centuries or millennia before Columbus uh, and the age of exploration and colonialism? Well, one article that appeared in the early 20th century seemed to flip the tables on history. This article contained the story of a discovery of massive proportions, that of uh, an alleged ancient Egyptian city hidden deep within the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon is a, a vast natural formation and is carved deep into the sandstone and, and bedrock of the Arizona desert. This uh, picturesque and beautiful canyon is both a site of wonder and mystery and it stretches across 277 miles of northern Arizona and reaches 18 miles wide at certain points. It's certainly large enough to hide a lot of things. There's so many different nooks and crannies and uh, things where 
you know, easily something could be hidden, but is it large enough to hide a city? And wouldn't other people have found some evidence of it by now? Or if the story was legitimate, wouldn't it be some kind of world-breaking news of the time? Perhaps there was a cover-up, or maybe it was all just fantasy. So let's go over what this article claims. The story begins with a front-page newspaper article published by the Arizona Gazette on April 5th, 1909. It was penned by an anonymous author, but the main contributor to the information of this article uh, was from an explorer and archaeologist named G.E. Kincaid, who allegedly worked for the Smithsonian for over 30 years. The piece was simply titled Explorations in Grand Canyon, and you can find uh, images of the old newspaper article clipping. Uh, pretty easy to find, but a lot of the scans are <laughs> a lot of the scans are really bad, so you can't quite read what's on most of them. Now, according to the story, Kincaid was funded by the Smithsonian for an expedition to hunt for quote minerals, and what minerals these were, he doesn't mention. But he started his expedition by traveling on a boat down the Green River in Wyoming before connecting to the Colorado in Arizona. In the article, Kincaid goes on to make sensational claims that deep in the earth, near the Marble Canyon region of the Grand Canyon, lies a cave system that houses the remains of some lost and unknown civilization, possibly from ancient Egypt or East Asia uh, in origin. And the article opens with this. The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G.E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. The entrance to this place was described to be almost inaccessible, being around 1,500 feet down a sheer canyon wall, with the bottom of the canyon still a couple thousand feet below that. Beyond that, the exact location was undisclosed, which makes sense if you don't want grave robbers and treasure hunters storming the area and disturbing what could have been one of the biggest archaeological discoveries of the modern era. Uh... And Kincaid went on to describe the area as being on government land and that anyone trespassing in the vicinity of the site would apparently be removed from the area or sent on their way. And I should note that if you're an adventurer or explorer, uh, you probably shouldn't attempt to scale any of the walls on the canyons. It's super dangerous. And, you know, I don't want to have anyone going out there and getting hurt, you know, because I'm talking about this, this uh, cave that has all these uh, ancient artifacts in it. So uh, I'll just say that the, the Strangeology podcast doesn't condone or encourage any activity relating to the search of this supposed cave. I know there's people that uh, claim they know where it is, uh, but, you know, don't do it, folks. <laughs> so as far as how Kincaid found this spot, he went on to describe that he was traveling by boat down the Colorado uh, by himself looking for these uh, supposed minerals he mentioned before. And he said that he was around 42 miles upriver from El Tovar Crystal Canyon 
and noticed some strange staining formations on the eastern canyon walls about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. And he noticed this weird formation and decided that he was going to go investigate, even though there wasn't really any kind of foot trail or way up there. Uh, But allegedly, he somehow managed to scale the walls up to this anomalous area. Uh, So right there, that's a little bit suspicious, but uh, let's, let's go on further here. So when he managed to get up there and got close to this weird, weird markings uh, on the canyon walls, uh, the mouth of this cave was revealed. And he noted seeing a series of steps leading away from the cave toward the edge of the cliff face he was on, uh, which he claimed must have led to the river at some point, uh, which indicated that perhaps the Colorado River at some point in the past would have been level with these steps. Um, before the water carved through the earth some 2,000 feet. Uh, so it get, uh, this is getting a little bit interesting, right? So how long ago was this cave level with the river? Uh, I, I've read some people saying 3,000 years, uh, some older, but really it's not, not quite known. <laughs> so from there, he approached the cave entrance and he noticed a series of chisel marks on the walls just inside of it uh, indicating you know human activity at some point so Kincaid says I guess I'll go explore this cave and walks in and according to the story he wound up finding this complex system of tunnels and larger cavern openings and and rooms and interestingly He noted that a lot of the passageways and open areas of this system seemed to be hand-hewn and chiseled by people, like it had been occupied at some point in the past and not by just a few people. We're talking about thousands of people inhabiting this place because of the sheer size of it. So Kincaid then journeyed into the cave, and he was going in several hundred feet uh, through a main passage, and apparently came to this crypt where he claimed to have discovered uh, several mummies along with all these relics. And he supposedly collected a few of the relics and wound up leaving the cave, trekked back down to his boat, and then headed to Yuma and then mailed out the relics to the Smithsonian so he could show them his findings. And at that point... uh, the story goes that further explorations were conducted of the cave system. And uh, it seemed like this uh, huge discovery could change history forever. And apparently Kincaid returned to the site uh, with this other Smithsonian archaeologist and professor by the name of S.A. Jordan. And they explored it further. And the whole system was found to be absolutely enormous, apparently going as deep as a mile into the earth. And according to the story, there were countless rooms. Uh, A lot of them were the size of your typical modern-day living room, along with huge open chambers and uh, tunnels and these strange oval-shaped doorways. Uh, It was said that based on all of these supposed findings, that uh, a population of 
uh, up to 50,000 people could comfortably live in this network of tunnels and rooms and chambers. And, you know, <laughs> it's just, this is wild. So uh, just what was this site that Kincaid found himself having stumbled upon? Was it just a natural formation or was it really something man-made? Underground cities aren't unheard of. Just look at the site of uh, Derinkuyu in, in Turkey, which is an ancient multi-level underground city said to have been capable of housing up to 20,000 people plus their livestock. And that's not the only underground city that's known. So this isn't uh, exactly something out of the ordinary that could potentially exist, you know? So Kincaid got pretty detailed about specific measurements of this place. Like the, the main passageway being 12 feet wide and eventually narrowing down to nine feet the further in you go. And apparently about 57, 60 feet from the cave entrance, there's this first kind of interchange or branching off of tunnels and uh, to the left and to the right. And in this section, he supposedly found several carved out rooms um, as big as 1,200 square feet. Each room had these strange oval doors and there seemed to be this ventilation system that had been built into the place. Um, and they were, they were made by these chiseled out round ports in the walls to help with airflow. And everything he noted appeared to be, you know, chiseled by the hand of man. And there were all these straight edges, like it was designed and executed by someone with, uh, someone with knowledge of engineering. Uh, so, this is uh, quite a bit of detail to put into the story, uh, but here's where things get interesting. Beyond that, the first intersection is this cross hall uh, that's hundreds of feet long. And what's fascinating about this hall is that this is the place where Kincaid reported finding all sorts of relics and items left behind that bore a, a striking resemblance to ancient Egyptian artifacts. And there was apparently this statue uh, of what was thought to be the primary deity or god of the people who built this place. And it was depicted as sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or a lily in each hand, and it somewhat resembled a Buddha statue, but it wasn't Buddha exactly, which is, you know, pretty interesting if true. And Kincaid went on to theorize that there could have been some connection with Tibet and Buddhism due to these similarities. Uh, so there were also other old religious looking artifacts and sculptures around this hall, some of which were carved out of marble. Uh, so Kincaid also claimed to have found several types of copper tools and weapons here as well, along with evidence of slag and charcoal indicating uh, the use of metallurgy. Uh, there were these artistically crafted copper and gold cups, and all these relics were taken to be from some previously unknown civilization in this part of the American Southwest with potential ties to ancient Egypt or the Eastern world. And then more bizarre discoveries were made. Among all these artifacts, there were also these strange yellow stones that people call cat's eyes that were strewn about everywhere. And largely they're not considered to be worth anything, but 
that was a curiosity at least like what are these stones doing here why are there so many of them uh there were also glazed and enameled pieces of pottery or uh vases and urns uh and even stone tablets along with that there was uh this mysterious gray metal that was strewn about uh which kincaid likened to platinum that was found throughout the the whole cave system and Apparently, none of these findings matched with any known ancient culture in this part of the world. In addition to all that, he also came across these 12-foot-tall rounded granaries, which appeared to be constructed of cement or something resembling it, and even a vast dining hall with remnants of cooking utensils that were left behind. And all of, all of this alleged infrastructure uh, certainly could support the claim that, you know, up to 50,000 people could have lived in this cave system if, it, if it's all real. Now, if you're wondering, okay, there's all this stuff in there, but is there any evidence of, of writing left behind so the people who occupied this underground cave city could potentially be identified? Well, here's where the story gets a little more interesting. According to this article, there was a system of writing that was found there, but it was in the form of hieroglyphics. Each urn, stone tablet, and the walls directly over the doorways were marked with this mysterious series of glyphs, which allegedly matched similar glyphs found throughout the Grand Canyon, Uh, and even as far south as the Yucatan Peninsula and Mexico. Whether those claims are substantiated or not is not really all that clear. And as far as the mummies that were apparently found in the crypt at the back of the cave, uh, this crypt was apparently one of the largest chambers within the cave system, which was believed to be a barracks of sorts. Each mummy was wrapped in a dark fabric, while some were covered in clay. The mummies occupied these hewn shelves, and each of them had a copper cup and pieces of broken swords with them. It seemed that the ones lowest to the ground were older, and the higher-up ones were younger or newer. Uh, and additionally, the, the newer mummies' copper cups apparently had far more ornate designs on them, which indicated uh, an advancement in artistry and civilization over a period of time. And apparently the mummies were also all male. No females or children were found within this crypt. And because of the sword pieces found and the lack of any women or children, uh, Kincaid thought this may have been a burial for warriors, uh, hence the idea of this chamber being a kind of barracks for soldiers. And one of the most interesting and mysterious claims in this article is that apparently there was a whole section of the cave that couldn't be explored. It was said to be uh, this unventilated section of the cave uh, that Kincaid and other explorers were unable to venture into, due to a noxious odor that seemed to fill that part of it. And in true Indiana Jones fashion, it was described to smell snaky. (laughs) And uh, at the time, flashlights and lanterns, uh, candles or kerosene lamps weren't powerful enough to cut through the darkness into that part of the cave very well. And 
there was thought to be this deadly gas or perhaps some kind of remaining chemicals uh, that had been sitting there for eons that were used by the ancient builders of the place. So nobody ever went in there. (laughs) Uh, So basically that's the story of uh, G.E. Kincaid and uh, S.A. Jordan's alleged cave system that was occupied by uh, some kind of technologically advanced uh, civilization that was sort of uh, resembling ancient Egypt or uh, things from Eastern Asia that we know nothing about. So is this story real? And if so, who were these people and where did they come from and where did they go? So let's look at a couple of ideas to help explain this. The creation story and oral traditions among the Hopi, Paiute, and other Pueblo nations all talk about emerging from under the earth in the Grand Canyon. According to their legends, the Hopi's ancestors lived and traveled through three different underground worlds uh, before ours, uh, each ending in some calamity. And at the end of the third world, the Hopi's ancestors arose to the earth's surface, which is the fourth world, where we are now. And it was said that the Hopi emerged to the surface after uh, a great conflict uh, occurred between good and bad, or the people of one heart and the people of two hearts. The, uh, the chief of the Hopi's ancestors, uh, or the, the one heart people, was named Machetto, who advised his people to leave the underworld despite there not being a way to leave. Uh, but then Chief Machetto made a tree grow tall enough to break through the ceiling of the underworld, making a way for the Hopi's ancestors to escape to the surface. And it was then that they met Masa, the caretaker of the earth, uh, who instilled upon the Hopi and other Pueblo peoples that they must honor and take care of Mother Earth. And they settled around the Colorado River and grew grain and, and corn and lived a peaceful life. And according to the legend of the One Heart people, they had sent this messenger to the Temple of the Sun asking for peace, goodwill, and rain. But the messenger never returned. And to this day, the Hopi people continue to wait for this messenger's return and the legend goes that when he does, their lands and ancient home will be restored to them. And this is only part of that story. Uh, we'll be getting into some more details about this later. So was this supposed underground city built by the Hopi or other Pueblo tribes, or was it someone else? There was another tribe that inhabited this region in ancient times that the Hopi called the Hisatsi Nam, or perhaps more well-known by the Navajo name of the Anasazi, which translates into the Ancient Ones, or more interestingly, uh, into Ancient Enemies. So, were they an enemy of the Hopi and the Navajo and other Pueblo peoples? Were the Anasazi potentially the creators of Kincaid's Cave? Uh, According to known history, the Anasazi made their home in the American Southwest, finding their roots there around 2,000 years ago, 
and they flourished as a civilization around 900 AD, finding their cultural center in Chaco Canyon. Their civilization spanned between the Four Corners area of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. They had the technology of irrigation and agriculture, and they also built roads, and they mastered building homes set within the earth that would shelter them from the harsh desert environment. Uh, These advanced into these structures called kivas, which later became spiritual places for ceremony and ritual and um, common public use, if you will. And some were big enough, apparently, to hold 500 people. And eventually, the Anasazi built and moved into structures like you see at uh, Mummy Cave at Canyon de Shelley in Arizona or Cliff Palace in Mesa Verde in Colorado, which are these large settlements built into the canyon walls. And I'm sure many of you have probably seen pictures of them over the years, but around 12 to 1300 AD, the Anasazi people mysteriously disappeared, leaving behind these stone structures and ruins, which still raise questions today. Most scholars attribute it to a loss of uh, trade routes with Uh, civilizations based in Mexico, and it was known that these two peoples were trading back and forth with one another, Um, or that they were driven off by hostile nomadic tribes, or that they simply assimilated and relocated into uh, the emerging Pueblo cultures of the time. And there's also the idea among ancient alien theorists that the Anasazi were connected to aliens in some way, and were either taken off world or were aliens themselves. Uh, But I'm not going to get too much into that (laughs) for this episode. Now, there's also the oral traditions and legends of the different Pueblo nations, the Hopi, the Navajo, the Zuni, and the Paiute tribes to consider as well, which state that the Southwest was once inhabited and ruled over by a culturally and genetically distinct group of people, different from all the other tribes. It was said that these people were giants with pale skin and red hair, which uh, typically isn't known to be native to the Americas, although uh, red hair is a recessive gene, uh, and there there are some cases uh, where that does happen, but largely uh, it's not terribly common. Uh, Some descriptions also painted these people as warlike and cannibalistic. And according to the legends, these people were eventually driven off or were wiped out entirely. There are theories that whoever these people were that built this cavern came from East Asia or potentially ancient Egypt as far back as the time of uh, the Pharaoh Ramses. And one school of thought about this whole thing is that the Pueblo people were actually a uh, serf class or slaves to this elite cave-dwelling group of mystery people, potentially these giant red-headed beings uh, who are eventually overthrown. Another theory uh, says that the, the Hopi are the descendants of this mystery people, and uh, which might line up a little bit closer to their origin story. And 
Kincaid seemed to believe that these people, whoever they were, must have lived there for thousands of years and also surmised that they were in the area long before Native American tribes moved there, uh, which is interesting to note as you'll read in here from time to time that different uh, structures uh, that are found around the Americas or in, in the Southwest that when white colonialists arrived, they're like, who built this stuff? And um, any of the first peoples there were like, oh, this stuff has been here since long before we were here. You know, someone else built them. So that's kind of a, an interesting idea for sure. On the other side of that, though, this information about redheaded giants in the, the American Southwest can be found on a lot of different websites online. And it seems like this idea came from the 1884 memoir of Sarah Winnemucca Hopkins, a member of the Paiute tribe and the first Native American woman author. And in this memoir, she mentions a tribe of reddish-haired barbarians that would kill and eat her people. And eventually, this cannibal tribe was driven into a cave uh, near Lovelock, Nevada, and killed off by the Paiutes. Uh, These people were not described to be giants, though, so ultimately, there might be some kernel of truth, but it's largely been blown out of proportion and sensationalized Um, and you can visit Lovelock cave today not sure if that's exactly where the cave was where this uh, enemy tribe was wiped out Uh, and according to the story Sarah Winnemucca Hopkins tribe was trying to they were at war with these people and they tried to give them a second chance at the end but then they all, the enemy tribe, went into the cave and uh, the Paiute people essentially uh, put a bunch of tinder in there and lit it on fire. So uh, pretty much whoever they were didn't make it out. <laughs> now let's go over the ancient Egyptian connection. Since the most popular claim about Kincaid's cave is that it was home to this lost underground ancient Egyptian city that was full of all these weird relics and they didn't really belong, you know, artifacts out of place kind of thing. So to start, the Grand Canyon was first surveyed by a man named John Wesley Powell, who did work for the Smithsonian. Powell was a Civil War vet, a geologist, a sociologist, and one of only four people to conduct a survey of the American Southwest in the later half of the 19th century. He was credited as being the first person of European descent, at least, to lead a small team of explorers and surveyors down to the floor of the Grand Canyon starting in 1867. And Powell was so awestruck by the beauty of the canyon that he wanted to give any natural landmarkers and formations or monuments, these spiritually inspired names, and chose ones based on ancient Egypt, such as Osiris Tower or the Temple of Ra. And there were also Norse and Hindu names picked out as well. So there may be a connection here as to why in the Kincaid story that the idea of a lost ancient Egyptian city found in the canyon was such a compelling idea. 
and perhaps it finds its roots in the names of some of these monuments. Some theories are also, uh, they question why these, uh, why these different land markers are named after ancient Egyptian uh, deities. And some people are like, oh, maybe that's because there is this <laughs> lost ancient Egyptian city uh, buried under the, uh, the Grand Canyon. So <laughs> I'm not entirely sure of that. You know, it seems like these were named well before the story of, of G.E. Kincaid's cave came out. And this period in history, after all, was a time of many archaeological discoveries in ancient Egypt uh, and Victorian-era Europe. Uh, Egyptian relics were very popular and so popular that the term Egyptomania was coined. There, were, there would be these parties where mummies would be unwrapped and paraded around rooms to audiences. Like, talk about... <laughs> Talk about macabre, you know? And then perhaps more disturbingly, uh, mummies were ground up and turned into fertilizer uh, or perfume or pigments for paint color that was called, and I kid you not, mummy brown. And there was even an earlier practice in the 16th and 17th century uh, where Europeans who, you know, they would grind grind up and turn these mummies into pulverized remains, uh, they'd get turned into these tinctures that would allegedly cure ailments like internal bleeding. Like, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that sounds legit, right? Uh, maybe not. But uh, I think you can probably call that <laughs> snake oil, right? Uh, and perhaps these these horrific scenes and practices probably drew inspiration for uh, modern day horror stories about, you know, the curse of the mummy <laughs> and all this, all the, that kind of stuff. Right. And this time period was also this era of sensationalist journalism or what's also called yellow journalism, kind of like a, uh, the predecessor to the clickbait articles, uh, and rage bait articles we have today. And what about the alleged mummies that were found in Kincaid's cave? Well, there is an interesting connection to the Americas and ancient Egypt, to which there is actual bona fide evidence for. In 1976, the mummy of Pharaoh Ramses II was analyzed after being sent in for some repair work by French scientists. These scientists found strange fibers within Pharaoh Ramses' uh, mummy bandages, and when they were examined by a Dr. Uh, Michel Lasco, they were found to be fragments of ancient plants, and further study revealed that the plant fragments were from a tobacco plant, which finds its origins in the Americas. Uh, they're not native to Africa or Europe or Asia. And though this was a, a huge discovery, it was met with a lot of harsh criticism. And even though the scientists who discovered this could replicate the results with different samples elsewhere on uh, Ramses II's body, it was largely just dismissed. And then in 1992, uh, a German toxicologist named Svetla Balabanova 
found traces of cocaine and nicotine in an Egyptian mummy. Uh, this was the mummy of priestess Henut Tawi. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, guys. <laughs> and specifically within the mummy's hair. Now, uh, nicotine can be derived from different plants around the world. Uh, cocaine, however, comes specifically from the coca plant, which is not native to Africa and before colonialism was only found in South America. So how did traces of these substances get there? This was pretty big news at the time, and traditional archaeologists and Egyptologists refuted these findings, uh, claiming it was just fraud or there was contamination, as it had been uh, long understood that there was never any evidence found of pre-Columbian transoceanic contact between America and ancient Egypt. Uh, minus, of course, the fact that the Vikings made it to the eastern shores of Canada almost 500 years before Columbus. But, uh, but it was true. These drugs were actually found on this mummy. Uh, so what happened? Was it contamination? Uh, well, according to Balabanova, her science and method was spot on, and further investigation seems to prove that the the mummies were authentic. They weren't just like faked mummies that had all this evidence and traces of <laughs> these different substances on them. So maybe there's more to the story of the cocaine mummies after all. Was it possible there was a transatlantic trade happening thousands of years ago? Were all these ancient civilizations not as cut off from each other as we've been taught to believe? Ancient Egyptians were largely considered to only be able to use boats in the Nile River, but there has been some recent evidence to suggest that they were actually capable of sailing in the open waters of the Red Sea. Uh, so it's not so much of a stretch to think maybe they traveled through the Mediterranean and out to the Atlantic Ocean. So perhaps, you know, there's some connection between ancient Egypt and some unknown sophisticated civilization in America, after all, predating anything else we know about. Certainly, there are wide gaps in the story of human history, uh, where knowledge, technology, and even civilizations themselves have been lost and disappeared without a trace. So we're coming up to the coming up to the end here, but uh, let's take a step back and look at the whole picture. So some guy writes into the Arizona Gazette claiming to be uh, an archaeologist working for the Smithsonian, looking for, quote, minerals, maybe covering for gold, <laughs> supposedly spots a strangely stained formation 2,000 feet up a sheer cliff face in the canyon walls, somehow makes it up there, even though he claims it's almost inaccessible and stumbles upon a seemingly very ancient uh, cave city built by some unknown technologically advanced civilization that potentially has ties to East Asia or ancient Egypt. This whole story sounds too good to be true. And ultimately, you have to remember that this article was written in 1909 during a time where there was a lot of this sensational yellow journalism and completely made up stories that publications would run uh, just to, you know, get people to buy, <laughs> buy their publications and make money. So is it true? Well, 
The problem is that there's no proof that G.E. Kincaid was ever a real person. And according to the Smithsonian, nobody named G.E. Kincaid or even S.A. Jordan ever worked for them in 1909 or any other time before that or after. And another point is that the, the Arizona Gazette was the only paper to ever publish this story. No relics were ever presented anywhere to prove any of these claims. No photographs ever surfaced from the alleged exp- expeditions out of the cave, even though G.E. Kincaid did mention he had a camera with him, uh, you know, to verify these claims. Uh, all we have is this story from the Arizona Gazette, which was also written by an anonymous author. Interestingly, there was a previous article in the Arizona Gazette from March 12th, 1909, just a few weeks before the Explorations in Grand Canyon article came out, that was also related to a G.E. Kincaid who said he had been making staggering archaeological discoveries around the Colorado River, uh, though, you know, that the story of the explorations in Grand Canyon was never followed up on. The story went silent after May of that year, uh, and nobody really remembered it until uh, David Hatcher Childress, who you might know from Ancient Aliens, uh, the He's a pretty well-known author in these circles. He rediscovered the article in 1993 and published it to a conspiracy theory rag called Nexus. And from there, it started popping up online once the internet was, you know, up and running in the the mid-90s. And so the likelihood of this being real at all kind of starts to fall apart pretty quickly. And... You know, it was probably the work of the the paper, the author, uh, or Kincaid himself, if he was real, in an effort to make money off of this compelling uh, story, which, you know, ultimately the chances of it being a hoax <laughs> based on all of that is, I would say, pretty high. But then there's the, the theory of a cover-up that comes into play. There's this big theory among alternative history uh, enthusiasts that the Smithsonian has been involved for years uh, covering up or destroying any evidence that would question the current historical paradigm, like covering up uh, giant human fossils, you know, that kind of thing, which is probably a a whole topic for another episode in the future. Uh, Certain researchers maintain that this story is true, Uh, such as uh, a guy that's uh, by the name of Jack Andrews, who claims to have found the actual location of the cave in Marble Canyon back in the early 70s, but he hasn't revealed its whereabouts, which is, of course, a little bit suspect, right? Uh, And there have also been claims made by the conspiracy theorist John Rhodes that this area is patrolled by armed security guards and is regularly patrolled by unmarked aircraft that fly uh, within the canyon or well below the legal limit set by the FAA. Uh, There was uh, this episode of America Unearthed on the History Channel where they actually got footage of a plane flying like within the canyon 
Uh, so, you know, there could be something to that. <laughs> I'm not sure, though. So the speculation and theories are, are really all over the place. And perhaps it's, it's all just a tall tale, uh, or perhaps there's some bit of truth to it after all. The situation around the original newspaper article from the Arizona Gazette back in 1909 and, and the lack of evidence of uh, Kincaid and Jordan ever existing or any follow-up to me, you know, it indicates that it was probably a hoax and likely was. However, there are some interesting things to be said about these other possible connections. Uh, and it still raises the question of, you know, what, what really happened in our past? There's new things that are always being discovered and time will tell what kind of things we'll learn about in the future about our ancient past. And that, my friends, is where I'm leaving the episode today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this long-winded story, which began with the story of the ancient lost city of the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon is one of my favorite places to visit. I've been there a couple times in my life. Uh, I proposed to my fiancé there, so it's it's got a pretty special place in my heart. Uh, I'm not sure there's an ancient underground cavern full of Egyptian relics or not, but <laughs> uh, I would highly recommend going there someday if you haven't yet. And definitely go around sunset because it's stupidly beautiful. <laughs> There's nothing else like it. Anyway, if you want to hear more stories, stick around after the break for my Patreon-exclusive segment, Strangeology Beyond, where I'm going to dive into the... Uh, the topic of the ant people and the prophecies of the Hopi. It should be a good time. And also, let me know what you think of the name Strangeology Beyond. I kind of like it. I needed to call my episode extensions something. <laughs> and I thought that sounded pretty cool. All right, now it's time for some quick shout outs. First of all, making this show as in-depth and interesting as it is, it wouldn't be possible without the help from my patrons. So shout out to Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Robin from the Mystic Novelty Company, Christine McTire, Chad from the Appalachian Huntsman, Michael Waddell from MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird and the Order 66 podcast, Roberto Martinez, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, and John Hickenbottom. If you want to check out the awesome rewards and benefits of becoming a patron, be sure to head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology and consider becoming a patron. It helps me out a lot in taking this show to the next level, and there's a lot of cool stuff that you'll get as a patron of this show. And thank you to all my listeners for downloading the show. We recently blew past 2,000 downloads, which is amazing. And uh, we now have listeners in 29 countries on six continents, which is wild. <laughs> and also, uh, at the beginning of the show, I had uh, played a couple of voicemails from the Strangeology hotline, <laughs> which you can call into. Uh, so if you have your own personal stories you'd like to share about cryptid encounters, aliens, UFOs, 
experiences with the paranormal, uh, definitely call in. Uh, the number again is 802-448-0612. 802-448-0612. And there's a three-minute time limit on messages. So if your story is longer than that, call back and, and pick up where you left off. I'm hoping to gather enough of these for a future episode to play for you all. Uh, kind of like my listener stories episode from a while back where people emailed into the show and having some voicemails to play, I think will be really fun and interesting. <laughs> and one more announcement, uh, strangeology now has a PO box. So if you'd like to send in fan mail or if you're a cryptid creator and want to send something nice, uh, I can do like an unboxing video or something like that over on my YouTube channel. Uh, do a little bit of promotion, uh, feel free. Uh, just please keep it PG, like the Patterson-Gimlin film. Uh, you know what I'm saying? You, <laughs> you can find the details for the P.O. Box over on my website, strangeology.com, uh, right there on the contact page. And if you haven't checked out my social media accounts yet, please give me a follow over on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and even TikTok. You never know when I'll be hosting uh, a merch giveaway or running a sale over on my Etsy shop. Uh, so definitely, definitely check it out. And we also like to have fun over over on the, uh, the Instagram page and other social media. I also recently uh, opened up a uh, private listeners group over on Facebook. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please do. All right, that's it for the show this week, everyone. Uh, stick around after the show if you're a patron for more awesome stories and content. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange.
Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around after the break to get into some more fascinating topics that relate to the show's main topic from today. So there's a lot of theories about this whole Kincaid's cave thing. Largely, it seems...